Oh my gato. What a week it has been. Gato? Doesn't that mean cake? It means cat in Spanish. Oh my cat. It's, um, it's a, you know, it's a magma language. It's a crew language. You'd have to be with us every day to understand. Oh, I see so how this, it is. This language has derived over the years from all the different dialects of Spanish that I've learned. So the book, you know, by the book that I learned, the Spain version, there's some Mexican slang thrown in there. I got dialects from Guatemala, El Salvador, and even now Puerto Rico. So basically, when I talk Spanish, nobody knows what I'm saying, even the guys that speak Spanish. <laughs> we'll join the rest of us. What are you guys doing? The Landscapes and Pancakes Podcast. Wow. There are a gajillion aspects to the green industry. All right. I just want this podcast to be real. <laughs> Interesting. It's not always fun. What? But I think people go through this. I know. None of it makes sense. Seriously. We are the ones designing and we are the ones building. We respect each other. Respect. So, Neil, what month is it? This is May. Right. It's May. And what does not typically happen in May? Snow. Right. Can you believe we had snow flurries today? Not really, but I did predict, because we had such a mild winter, that we were going to pay for it in the spring. But I never dreamed we'd be paying for it at this point. I mean, oh. this late in the game. Oh, my gosh. I was devastated when I saw the flakes coming down. And we have a massive frost warning tonight. And all my vegetable seedlings have just popped up, and they're so happy. And now they're not going to be. And all that grass seed that I'm growing... I guess the one good thing is it did dry out this week, especially for our job site. My God. Yes. Thank goodness. I mean, it it was, what, the two weeks prior, we're just wet. Rain, 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 rain. cold. And And rain. Yeah. And we're... we're And then more rain. And we're working one of the highest points in Rhode Island, and it's, it's been cold up there. And the wind's just been whipping off that reservoir. So it's been, it's been chilly. You know, I packed up all the long johns weeks ago. I thought <laughs> I was in the clear. So no, it's been tough, but, um, you know, and especially now with all the, how wet it is, we're in the phase where we're filling and doing finish, you know, finished grading for all the garden beds and, um, all the lawns. So it's been a challenge. Right. Well, I was going to say, it looks like we actually made some really good progress on our job. I mean, yeah. Lots of grading. The plantings got in, and we wouldn't have been able to do that two weeks ago with all the wet weather. No, for sure. This week was a huge week, and it's just we've gotten to the point where a lot of the other subs are finally, you know, starting to kind of get out of our way, all the big trucks. So this this job's interesting, um, you know, because, like, with most jobs of this scale, you go in, and you're fairly um, regimented. You know, we'll go in, we'll do some excavation. You know, that's a phase. And then we'll transition to some base prep maybe a wall build, some patio work, some drainage. We kind of knock out one of those elements at a time. Well, the nature of this project with access and the amount of grade changes and things that we're doing and big machinery and trucks that are coming in and out, I really haven't been able to finish any portion of anything, right? Because I have to leave all these things open. So now... Um, I mean, we're doing drainage, we're doing stonework, we're, we're grading, 
we're seeding, we're planting. I mean, we're doing every element that we do with magma has been happening all week. Well, I know. I thought it was funny because when I was there this week laying out the plants, we all were in our own sections of <laughs> yeah. the landscape. So yeah. there was someone in the backyard. There was someone in the side yard. There were a couple of us in the front yard. Yep. And there was you just checking in on everybody, yep. making sure and nobody felt too lonely. I know. And it's a big, uh, oh, it's a big property. So I've been doing a lot of walking. It's funny. Like Tim's been working on the pizza oven. Which was a, when did they say they wanted the pizza oven? Like a month ago? <laughs> so we had to <laughs> like, like two weeks ago. scramble, A, to order this thing, get all our materials and get all prepped for it. But yeah, he's been, he's been doing a great job on that. And every once in a while, I just go back there to check in on him and say, hi, nice to see you. Thanks for coming. You know, <laughs> it's other than that, I'm on the other side of the house doing my thing. We should talk a little bit about today's guest. Yep. Because I definitely want to make sure that before you guys listen to this interview with Thea Alvin, you have got to check out her website yes. at myearthworks.com. Myearthwork.com. Right. No S. What he said. Spell it out. Spell uh, it out, Samo. I'm not going to spell it out. Myearthwork.com. My okay. Um, because her work is absolutely amazing. Oh, she yeah. does a little bit of everything, but is definitely, I think, probably the most well-known for her stonework. Yes. Um, some exceptional stonework. So hit pause, go check out her website right now. We will wait for you and then come on back for a truly inspiring interview with Thea Alvin. We are thrilled today to have Thea Alvin with us. Thea is an artist, designer, and stonemason based in Morrisville, Vermont. So Thea, thank you. Thank you so much for oh, taking the time. Thank you so much. Um, and for taking the time out of your garden, because I know how hard it can be to find time to work (laughs) in the garden. (laughs) So a really, uh, very serious question to get us started. How's Garfield today? Oh, Garfield had a really big dinner. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) He's really lazy and fat and laying still this morning. (laughs) Lasagna, I take it. (laughs) So for those of you. Lasagna. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know, Garfield's actually one of Thea's um, hammers. Yep. All right, there's no more technical term than that, Well, right? why don't you let her explain what well, it I is? Well, I will. <laughs> Garfield is a hammer. All my hammers have names because why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? Sure. But we, we have had between 20 and 50 different hammers. And each hammer has a different use. And each hammer basically has a different weight to it. So it'll deliver a a heavier blow to whatever material you're working on. And each hammer has a specific stone that it's most useful for. So I most frequently work with Clint Eastwood and American. (laughs) Nice. Yes. I like Yes. (laughs) But if I need the bash or the baby bash, I can be specific and, I could say something really boring like the five pound mall. Right. Or I could just say, I need I need the bash. And um, my children gave me the bash for my 40th anniversary, which was a big bash that we had. So nice. I took the name and bonded it to the hammer. And um, everybody knows that's bash. So um, Garfield is Garfield. He's a green three pound mall. And if I need Garfield, it's better than Lucas, who is another three pound mall of the same brand. And um, I had, uh, because I travel for work so much, I frequently buy tools in situ. So I use them there. 
um, if I'm going to return to the project, I'll leave the tools there. So I don't carry uh, it in my carry on baggage, you know, lethal weapon and everything. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, rules, so, rules, rules, rules. <laughs> I know rules. So Lucas um, lives in Jackson, Wyoming, with uh, a a couple Clint's and a Marion. So <laughs> they're very happy little family out there. And when I go back, I'll I'll get Lucas. So um, Garfield's here, and Lucas is there, even though they're the same. Um, when uh, Michael, my partner, and I refer to our tools, we can know specifically what project they were on because if we got them for that job, that's that's where they live unless we brought them home. Well, that's or, good that you don't travel with those because that can get messy because that reminds yeah. me we went to Costa Rica. I had a retractable pruning knife and <laughs> in my in my carry-on backpack, like a 12-inch blade on it, serrated, <laughs> post 9-11. Do you remember that? I do. We're leaving Providence and I'm like, oh my God, we're never going to make it to Costa Rica. I don't even, how it was in the bag and I didn't know, I have no idea, but it was tucked in there, man. And it was a good pruning saw too, man. They took it. TSA owns it now. (laughs) I get stuck. I get stuck in TSA with corkscrews and they take those off me. I'm like, seriously, this is for wine. It's not for (laughs) stewardess. I don't understand. Why is this a problem? Well, they see that and they know exactly what it is. And they're like, that's coming home with me. That's my theory. That's nice. Same thing with that pruning knife, I tell you. Oh, that's funny. So some people have, let's say, shoe obsessions, and perhaps you have a bit of a hammer obsession? We might call it an obsession. We might just call it practical. Practical. Oh, right. <laughs> no offense, no offense. <laughs> just call me Imelda. It's okay. <laughs> so, Sophia, um, what don't you do? So, you know, looking through your work and learning more about you, you know, we see... Not only do you do stonework, you do sculpturing, you work with stained glass. Is there anything? You're building a house. Yeah, you timber frame the house. You're siding the house. You're building a pond. You're very accomplished. I don't know where you find all this time. You have chickens. So what don't you do? (laughs) Pizza ovens. I I have been asked that question many times because (laughs) it does seem like I do a lot of things. Um, What I can say that I don't do is I don't sing and I don't dance. But oh. I no 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 no. I heard I heard dance? about dancing. I heard about fairy dancing through some arches that you had yeah, done. I so was, I I thought that was mandatory. That was mandatory. But if you notice, that's more. Those are all world-renowned stonemasons, and none of us dance. If you did watch that video, <laughs> uh, you'll notice that's not dancing. That's jiggling and like running in circles with smiles. That's okay. Not, all right. <laughs> that's not dancing. Um, but on that the fairy dance the um. You will see in that photo, in the video, there are many, many masons from around the world. The Queen of England's mason from Balmoral Castle is in that video. Wow. He's a friend. His name is Norman Haddow. Oh, yeah. We are are pen friends, it's called, when you write to someone in Scotland. Okay. So we've been corresponding. But we also have um, worked in many places together, including Canada and Italy. And he is just, he's a lovely human being. And then there's another Mason in that group named Eric Landman. And he is a guy from uh, Toronto. eh? And (laughs) if you look up a stone tree, you'll see an amazing, beautiful tree that he built with his children and some friends in a memorial garden in Canada. And in this memorial garden, people plant trees for their dead loved ones. 
and he had a dead loved one that he built a tree for out of stone masonry. Is that and the one that's it's, it's built with round? The tree itself is more of a rounded, pillowy stone, and there's flat stone on. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, that Beautiful. is just it, and it's been copied and replicated, and and people try, but that tree is the tree. It's oh yeah, incredible. It's just, and when you see a picture of Eric next to it, you can see the scale. It's not a small tree. It's a real. It's a tree sized tree. So. Oh, wow. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. That's it, amazing to put the um, the name to the project because I've seen the image and it reminds me of you early on in my career. Um, I knew of you, if that if this makes sense, before I knew who you were, because I had no idea who you were, but I had heard about your work um, from friends that had visited Vermont on Route 100 and seen your Helix sculpture. Yeah. And then we had done some flower shows in Boston and in um, Providence. We've done a few. Boston. Boston. (laughs) Come on, not everyone talks like that. (laughs) Well, you have some new, you have some Massachusetts roots too, from what I've read. Um, I certainly do. And we did some, you know, uh, some garden presentations here and there. And people, I can't tell you how many people talk to me about those sculptures and your work. And it took me a while to to put your name and face to the pieces. I think Uh I found you through, um, this is, Really, bef- not before the advent of social media, but it was before I kind of really latched on to social media. So I, c- I couldn't find you, but I found you. I think it was through the Stone Foundation. Okay. And yeah. um, it's just, it was awesome to put the face and the name to the work. And then to see everything you've done was just really, truly inspiring to me. Um, okay. You're, you're, you're on my, my Stone um, artist legend tree like you were just oh, you've been up there no you've been super inspiring um, he called it the Mount Rushmore of stone inspiration oh I think. you're up there with Dan Snow and like Lou French has been a big you know influence on me uh-huh. um, does different style work but yeah you guys are all His up work there is amazing he yeah one of my dad's contemporaries so no kidding um, yeah Martha's Vineyard? Martha's Vineyard okay. that's where that's where my roots are and my dad's a mason and Lou and my dad are similar age and so the when I, uh, well, let me just pedal back a moment here. Um, people often ask me to build work like this or like that. And mm-hmm. somebody w- asked me the other day to build something that looked like Michael Eckerman's work. Okay. And somebody else asked me to do something that looks like Lou French's work <laughs> and to <laughs> interpret Andy Goldsworthy's work. And um, for me, it's it's acceptable to reference somebody's um, thing like we do when we're learning how to draw or how to paint. We can reference Monet or um, Van Gogh or somebody to, to have a starting point. But then to, to be put in the same um, sort of framework as Dan Snow or Lou French, for mm-hmm. me, that's just incredible because I've always looked at them as icons. I'm not in that, I'm not in that oh, echelon. They're, yes, they're still up there for me in the, in the clouds. <laughs> So I, I, I appreciate that, that you would say that. Is that is awesome. And a funny story with Lou. So we, we, we got his first book and Samantha emailed him. This is going back years. Yeah. Randomly. I'm like, I'm just going to shoot him right. an email. And she just said, you know, my husband's aspiring stonemason and he's really influenced by you. We'd love to talk about your work, whatever. Yeah. Correspond. And he actually wrote back almost immediately and invited us to Martha's Vineyard to go oh, wow. see some of his projects. Can you imagine that? Like he picked oh us God. up off the ferry, yep. carted us around to these properties. We went, we went to some of the gardens and then we went inside one of the houses where he had, you know, the people weren't home. This multi-million dollar 
his state, <laughs> and he had the keypad to go in to show us the fireplace. And he, I don't know, he spent a couple hours with us and then dropped us back off the ferry and said, see ya. That's and so it, great. Yeah, isn't that amazing? That's yeah. amazing. Amazing. Incredibly, incredibly generous. And so in, in kind of talking with your father, I mean, about your father, it seems like that's where your story kind of begins. Well, you yeah. have, I have quite a story before that, <laughs> but if we kind of pick up there. Um, so you were working as a mason tender with your father. I mean, how did that, and you were 16. So how does that come about? I doubt any 16 year old says, hey, dad, let, let me go pick up bricks for you. So how did that even happen? So, so that's a tricky and not pleasant part of my childhood story. My dad was of a mindset that my school my schooling on Martha's Vineyard at the regional high school was poorly influencing my life choices. <laughs> and so he took me out of school as posh and perfect as a high school could be for teaching every type of individual. I was being corrupted by uh, the worldly students there. My dad was quite religious. So he took me out of school so that he could isolate me and teach me himself, which meant no school and masonry 12 hours a day. Wow. So, and if I didn't do it fast enough, I didn't get dinner. So there was some time. So when it very, very much was not what a 16 year old girl on Martha's Vineyard would have in mind. So it's not a warm, fuzzy part of my story. It's a formative and um, it's, a, it's a thing that I look to as a marker of how I'm not intending to teach students who come to work with me or my children. People are... Uh, have tremendous value, and we're not meant to be slaves to this process. Mm. Within that learning, though, what that was like was I was mixing mortar and screening sand and carrying blocks and bricks and mortar um, up, you know, to the roof from the ground, two or three stories of these beautiful Martha's Vineyard houses. We would start a chimney in the basement, and I would serve him every single piece of material that he needed from the bottom to the top of the roof. And we did that all day long. So it was a lot of work. And I got to be very, very strong and very determined. And I learned not to cry. I was not a little girl. I was a worker. And that's my takeaway, was that I, I wouldn't cry. I wouldn't break. And I wouldn't give him the satisfaction of having to see me break. So I just bared down and dug in. And I, I treated it as a... Um, as a, a thing that I needed to win and to continue to win and to have it as a game that I would, I would do this thing and I would be strong. And, and that's what happened. And I came out of that um, into another equally stupid and painful situation at 18. I ran away and got married um, and to the boy who caused the situation to begin with. And um, we moved directly from Martha's Vineyard to Vermont to a cabin in the woods where I was, I became a homesteader and we didn't have electricity or running water. And um, we had kids right away and it was incredibly hard, it, but I was determined to win. And I made our clothes and I grew our food and I pumped the water and I chopped the wood and raised three amazing humans in that situation. Wow. And then um, during that time, I continued to refine and build and work on stone projects because for my dad, I did brick and mortar and stonemasonry doesn't include bricks and mortar. Mm -hmm. Stonemasonry um, in its proper truest form as um, Norman Haddow, the legend would say, 
any mortar is the devil's cream. <laughs> and, and as my dad's Christian belief, um, the devil isn't somebody that you want to have near you. So um, I was working together with these two thoughts of stepping into the purity of what stonemasonry can be and into the practical world of what it is and um, how each situation is unique and each group of people and each setting is unique. So it needs its own individual specialized approach. So after, um, after I raised the kids to a decent age, not, um, you know, they were all in school. It was something that I could leave the, away from home and not abandon a baby in a bassinet somewhere. Um, they were all in school. And then I started to work full-time away from home as a Mason. And um, I would come home at night, make dinner, put everybody to bed and um, sew until midnight. And then in the morning, I'd get up and put everybody in school and go to work and then do the whole thing all over again. So I was able to continue um, learning and developing a style throughout that time while I was raising my kids. But so there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Okay. Let me dissect this. I know. Um, I mean, I have, I have so many thoughts. So one, one is, and I don't, I want to go back to kind of the story of starting the masonry, but my first thought was, had you not gone through that experience with your father, do you think you would still be creating? Do you think you would still be creating with stone? I mean, do you think that that was just part of your path? I think the work with my father was um, an education in a direction of my path. I feel that as a creative, I would have found an outlet. And it may have been very similar, but my trajectory as a hard scrabble determined person came from the hardships that I've experienced. And my ability to be inventive and creative and sort of MacGyver things came from really not having stuff and to, to be able to um, extrapolate what the fundamentals of the need of or the essences of a project and then find a way to deliver those things throughout the project. I think that that is, that's what the takeaway was for me from my childhood. Um, I have always been creative. I've always been driven to draw to uh, paint as rough as that is, um, and to build. So whatever, whatever the, the means would have been, it, it would have happened. Um, to say without my dad, would it have been stone? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know that it would have been, but it certainly would have been something. It's... I thought that I was going to go to RISD. Uh, <laughs> so it, that, that formal education may have uh, potentially turned me off. Or it could have shaped a direction in uh, pen and ink or um, digital art or something. You know, it, it could have totally been a different tangent. Mm -hmm. And because I had no education in the arts, I'm raw and unformed and can, I, I don't have this set of rules that say you can't do that. So I'm able to explore all of the things that, um, that I find interesting. So that, that makes a unique expression in the, on the, on the, done end of what the product is it's interesting that you say you're raw to, to me that ties right into the stone and the, yeah. the, the elements yeah. that you're working with with earth yeah. you've talked about your work from what i've been reading as being a, a, a spiritual it thing is. Yeah. and that's yeah. it's it's amazing to hear your story it all ties in for me now 
do, do you see your work? Is there a meditative quality to it as you're building? A, Absolutely. Um, a, a release? And has that been um, when you were younger going through some, some harder times? It has always been the case for me that my best work comes from the worst times in my life, mm. that I'm able to, um, to find the most beauty in the most terrible tragedies. There are parallel spikes in, in epic size of things that I'm able to create and um, model through what's happening in the, my life. It's probably, you know, things that happened two years ago are reflecting in sculptures that I'm building now. The, the opposite is also true. When I'm in incredible beauty, I'm often inspired to take little pieces from what I'm seeing and then reinstall those into a sculpture. And um, the first couple of days of building a sculpture, I'm immediately inspired by what I should have done or could have done or will do in the next one. Mm. So immediately these things are, it begins to be that rolling ball of um, whatever it is that rolls and gathers that um, inspires and continues to churn so that instead of having books full of designs, you have a landscape full of designs. Yeah. And in as infinite amount of stone as you can collect, you have these structures built. You referenced the spiritual component of the work and the meditative um, action of building. And for me, that um, ephemeral nature of what stone is and of what our life is and of our sort of inherent need to leave a mark or to procreate in some way if our creation is our, our namesake and all of mine are unnamed, it kind of adds a value to me of that it is ephemeral. It is without ego. It is without attachment. And that it could be mine or it could be any hundred other person's work. I, I find that incredibly beautiful that it's, that it's a, a thread of a, of a big story and that you might see one little piece here and then another piece will pop up somewhere else and that it has these reflections throughout. Um, and another aspect of it is just the, the physical nature of the work is incredibly demanding. You need to be relatively fit um, on an extremely high carb diet. Yes, um, I was going <laughs> to ask about how over the years you've sustained the energy and how your body, you know, you what do you do to prevent it from from breaking down, which we, you can get into an hour later, but I, I definitely want to touch yeah. on that. Well, um, I don't know if you know, but I'm short. And um, the shortness, I think, in stonework is an incredible advantage because I don't have to go that far to get to the ground. And um, to pick up stone, it's it's right there for me. So mm -hmm. um, I can relate. I don't, <laughs> I don't strain my back because I don't have a back, is what I tell people. <laughs> um, I, I have... Uh, two thirds of my body from my waist down. And I pick up a stone, not in that I have long legs, but in the, the, the sort of size. Um, I can pick up a stone and put it in my hips and carry it with my legs sort of in a, in a clinch position rather than carrying it with my upper body and my arms the way that a man might because a man is, is you know physically bigger and stronger in the shoulders and chest. So I'll put it on my legs, hug it to my body and walk so my little legs are nice and sturdy and, and they carry the stones for me wherever I go. But in that whole thing, there is this massive amount of energy spent and I have to summon a lot of energy. And if I'm really angry or really sad, 
that's a wealth of a pool to draw from. And then you dump all of that into a beautiful sculpture. And at the end of the day, you're creating something. In the act of creation, you feel this divine power and you're using big, fat, small, skinny, beautiful, ugly. You're using the whole thing and it, it kind of summons, it summarizes all of the parts of religion that, that I'm accustomed to knowing. We accept all types, we love unconditionally, and we're constantly creating and building a beautiful world around us. These are things that I want to carry forward. This, this is my religion of respect and love and order and organization and the natural world. There's got to be days and times where you're like, you know what, I'm tired today. I'm not feeling it or doubt creeps in is this really the direction that this piece needs to be going um I mean talk about the struggle a little bit because it's not you know we're talking about how spiritual it is and I love Mm -hmm. that side and that philosophical side of it but there's definitely from watching Neil you know and from doing some myself a little bit um which I think you people who work with stone are a little crazy. You got, you've got a little crazy in you, but I'll go back to that. <laughs> a little? Oh. <laughs> but, but there's got to be days where you're just like, this isn't working. I'm tired. I'm, I have to walk away. So, so talk a little bit about the struggle with creating these pieces. The struggle for me is when I run out of material. Mm. The struggle isn't getting through my day. I... I get really excited about working with stone. Um, the The struggle might be it's really, really raining and less than fifty degrees, and my feet are up to my ankles in mud, and I can't pick up, I can't pick my foot out of the mud with a hundred pound rock in my hands safely. And those are days I just call it. If if it's a beautiful day and I've got an agenda and I'm constantly driven and we are, you know, we're timeline driven. I have a flight out of here in three days and this guy's got to get done. And there isn't a way around that. Um, So we work through a lot of terrible conditions and um, I, the, the struggle for me is really coping with the weather and um, finding time to communicate with uh, and design for future clients that are, in the three-year, four-year timeline while I'm in this moment and being present in this moment. Um, Another struggle for me is that I'm so driven to create and to build that I neglect my relationship with my partner and I neglect my relationship with my animals. And I don't think very highly of my need to exercise and my like a diet program and waking up early. And I, when I'm in the moment of, building it is almost to the exclusion of everything else it is a complete focus on whatever that piece is so for me to to find the time and to put the equal energy that i do into creating a sculpture as into a relationship that that for me is the bigger struggle because that is the more important thing is this long-term sculpture that i'm building um but I do tend to, to get lost and to lose track, to, to just dive into the work so much. And also we go project to project. So for Michael, that's exhausting because he, he wants to spend time. He wants to go to a lake today and I want to plant the trees today. And he wants to sit and enjoy. And 
not, he's, I'm not saying that he's lazy in any sense, no, no, but no. he wants to smell the roses and I want to plant them in 10 other gardens. <laughs> so um, appreciating the, the differences, but also soaking in the moment. Those, that's where I really need to do the work. I need to, um, to not run away into building. I need to sink in and, and dig in and do well on, on everything at the same time. Oh, that's, it's, it's, um, refreshing to hear that you can identify that though. I can um, identify it very well. Doing yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. So I think that it's interesting what you touched on because I think a lot of people would think the process is lonely, um, where I get so absorbed in an idea and I start building it and it's like nothing else in the world really matters during that time. Mm -hmm. I'm totally comfortable with it. I don't know if it's the way I grew up. I grew up alone a lot, mm -hmm. uh, raised by a single mother who, who worked a lot. She had to. Um, but I, I, was, I was alone a lot, and I'm comfortable with it. And Samantha, you've actually uh, you've made a comment a time or two that you were surprised I ever got married because you could just see me being alone and, and fine with it. Mm -hmm. But it's, 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 I value the relationship. I love the relationship. It's just in those moments, I'm completely comfortable. And I think maybe from an outsider looking in, I don't know if they can identify. I don't know if you can identify with that, Samantha. It's just, it's interesting to think about where maybe to some people that may be someone you're in a relationship with in that moment, maybe you're intimidated by that. Like, wow, this person can really be alone and they're fine and they're happy. Look what they're doing. Well, I love what Thea said about how your partner wants to stop and smell the roses and how you want to plant 10 more. That I completely relate to because there's always the next thing to be done. There's always more. You can always go on to the next thing. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, um, cause well, we joke that Neil and I aren't good for each other because <laughs> we're both that way. But I was going to ask you, do you think there's anything that makes you, is there a reason why you won't kind of stop and enjoy it? You know, why, it's why don't so you? Much to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> does that, does it, does I feel that, when I take the time to relax, that I am taking time away from an important thing that needs to get done. Right. And I feel guilty. Yo, so you beat yourself up over it? No, because no? I don't stop. Okay. I don't. I, but you, I, okay. I would All right. if I did, but I don't. So I don't have to. <laughs> I, I, I'm in I, this perpetual cycle yeah. of doing so that I don't get beat up by me for taking a moment. I'm 52 years old. I could have a moment. But I, I, I think I probably work 14 hour days wow. every day still, right, like right now. I'm, and I'm anxious talking to you because I have stuff to do. So it's like, <laughs> All right. So we got to, we got to keep going. We got to move on. All right, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> this is kind of resting. I'm sitting still. When I sit still, I usually fall asleep because I don't. <laughs> All right. Then let me, okay. We'll, uh, we'll keep, we'll keep <laughs> rolling here then. Um, I, because I, I feel like there's a whole section of your journey that we actually we really haven't touched on yet, and it goes back to the beginning a little bit, because I do want to understand, when you were raising the three kids, and, and you said that's kind of when you actually started um, working as a mason, what does that mean? Did you start building a stone wall for someone down the road? What even made you think to go back to that or to start that trade? Well, I needed a vegetable garden. And we lived in the woods. And so I dug the, the earth and there was, uh, there was stone. There wasn't really earth. So I used the stone that I had and um, made a retaining wall of my own design and with no training in stonework. And 
that retaining wall fell down eventually. <laughs> and so I took it apart and built another one. And I, um, I had a really decent vegetable garden. But then I realized that I wanted to go through the, the retaining wall into the forest slope behind it. So I took apart a section of the wall and I tried to build a set of stairs. And at, in building the set of stairs, I realized that I needed nice flat stones so that the steps could be even. And so I started building just the steps. And then with the stone wall um, ending on either side and just steps, there's a bunch of dirt in what we call the return, where the stone wall might take a right angle and parallel on both sides of the stairs. I hadn't accounted for that in my design of how to, how to do it. So I took the whole thing apart again and started again and integrated the stone in the corner and the stair tread and the, the rise of the whole thing at the same time. And that was very complicated. And I was very proud of myself for this. I think my steps were 12 inches or more high. <laughs> impossible to use but technically you know dialed right in um and so friends saw that and i i began to work for friends and then um, as my marriage fell apart i took a job for a landscaper where i began to work with a professional and for that professional i wasn't allowed to lay stone in the wall i carried stone for him i was a tender and i learned to drive equipment and i learned to see what he needed and anticipate what he needed in the same way that I did for my dad. So I fed him stone that would go um, directly into the wall. I oriented it to his position so that he, all he had to do was pick up the stone and put it in the wall. And I, over the course of three years, I learned to see what he needed. And um, I, during that time, I wasn't allowed to use hammers. And um, because a hammer will quickly ruin a stone, you need to have an appreciation for the value of the material before you pick up a hammer and start destroying things. Through the process of, of watching people work, of participating uh, as, a, as a tender, as a sort of bystander, as a supporting person, and watching the flow process, I learned the stages of the work. I learned the, the steps, the foundations, the, you know, what, what you needed to do to lay a base for a wall. If it was a, a two-face wall, double-face wall, if it was a retaining wall, if it had details or uh, designs in it, if it was straight or curvy. Um, when I turned 28, I was a single mom, three kids, and uh, there was an opportunity that I had the two weeks in the summer when the kids are with their dad. I took that opportunity to travel, and I went woofing, which is an organization for workers on organic farms. And I chose farms that were in countries that I wanted to visit and farms specifically that needed stonewall repairs done. And so I worked from farm to farm in Italy, learning from Italian farmers like myself, but in, you know, they're similar to me, but in another country, what their technique and what their styles were and what the material was that they had. And um, I worked in England and France and Italy, uh, I worked in China and in Iceland, learning different techniques from different people who worked with stone of different varieties. And through those times, I was able to shape and form a philosophy of what stone was for me and what the design was um, as a mason specifically. And 
Um, I don't know if you know, but Vermont isn't a place you can work outside in the winter. So <laughs> I can imagine. Least, <laughs> it's not very happy place to work if you're a stonemason because you, it's just it's formidable. I did try the first year. It was 20 below. Oh, I had built a plastic tent. I was living with a kerosene salamander furnace and it was just it's awful it's yeah. not that those are times when you just give up and 20 below is just stupid <laughs> <laughs> nice try <laughs> i i went to work in uh in a craft gallery in stowe and i um began as a sales clerk selling other people's handmade crafts and it was a very fun experience and I immediately began to um, sell a lot of stuff and have a lot of success. And then also because the gallery was working with craftsmen who were making the thing um, that you were selling, you could ask them if they would make a thing just a little different because the customer wanted one that was blue or bigger or smaller or greener or taller or with white stripes or could it be a table? Um, and so like my, this was where my brain works best is in the modification of the thing into this other thing. We opened a, an interior design studio that I did my sales work in and worked with um, a, an interior designer and then a contractor firm and began to build designs with artisans. So we would integrate somebody's concrete and steel table into an entire seen a vignette within their home with handmade artwork. At the gallery, um, I was working with incredibly talented artisans. And one of those artists um, entered me in a sculpture competition in Burlington, Vermont. And then she came back and she told me, I've entered you in a competition and um, you'll have to figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> at that time, That's I had your never problem. <laughs> exactly. But she wanted to get me out of my head. I was working for other people. I was I was pitching other people's work, and she she had faith that I could dig in and be something. And I credit her a lot with with that. And she is a fabulous artist. And if you haven't seen Kirsten Reese Kane's, write her down and look her up. She is amazing. She's all about metal. Um, so she said, you'll do this and you have three months and figure it out. So I spent those three months teaching myself how to build an arch without looking it up. It's before the internet. Uh -huh. <laughs> and of course I could have had what's called a library. <laughs> you can go to those places. Can you explain um, that for the kids out there? That <laughs> well, there are these things and they have pages that are made of paper. Books, um, books. <laughs> Anyway, um, I had, I put the word out to some local folks that I needed some stone and a man who worked for a tile and floor company gave me a pile of thrown away marble that he had in a sand pit and that doesn't exist anymore. It's now a shop, shopping plaza. I spent the whole summer there. My kids rode their bikes around and they picked up frogs and things in the, in the bog and, um, I built an arch out of marble. And the first one was, if you can imagine two towers of stone, one on either side of a five foot tall body. And mm -hmm. then that little person 
stretches out her legs and sort of balances between those towers and wraps her arms around the outside and tries to pull the towers together to make an arch, which was um, not smart and not. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm going to need a form to hold these things up and I'm going to have to build around that form. And I had not studied what an arch was. I, I just knew that I wanted to build one. So I made a shape that wasn't any part of a semicircle. It was just sort of an arc. It was a random arc. Mm. And it was a, a piece of plywood that I used for the form, a single, a single sheet. And I balanced that with two two by fours that were just sort of propped against the ground. I didn't have any tools. I wasn't really building very much. I was living in a in a house, a normal house with normal, you know, you have a hammer and a screwdriver in the kitchen drawer. And I took all of the marble that I had and I laid it on top of that and I wedged it with other stuff. And then I had this marble wobbly arch thing on a sheet of plywood and there's no way to get the sheet of plywood out. And <laughs> like, darn it all. <laughs> you came work. all that way, right? <laughs> <laughs> and this is all after, after work, you know, I'd have to go to work at the gallery and think of, through the day how to do this thing and ask somebody for some tools and um, I figured out how to eventually I got that one sheet to be two sheets of plywood so there was a, a space about six inches that was you know you put a two by four in the middle and you have it the sheet thickness on either side and then I had that very heavy big sheet of the the form thing in the middle that was now a semicircle. It's the top half. You know, if you think of a clock from nine to three, it's that top half of a yep. of a circle. Um, I put that on the ground, and then I built the arch of marble over it. And it was very sturdy; wasn't wobbly at all. Um, but also couldn't get the form out from under. <laughs> I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> Darn it! <laughs> Start again. <laughs> this is why I took all summer. If I had studied at all, I could have known what formwork was. I would have had a good idea. Of, you know, you unscrew some legs, or you take off the face, or you know, there's any number of ways to solve the problem. Um, so I took a, a 12 inch long two by four, and I cut it on a diagonal. And then I offset those to, to make a, a, a wedge shape that I could, I thought I would just tap out the top one and that that would drop the form out. And I, it worked and I use that today. So I nice. have two pairs of these wedges, I screw them together, put the form on top of that, build the arch over that, unscrew the wedges, tap them out and the form drops gently and slowly with the with the wedges and the arch stays in place so that took three months so <laughs> <laughs> now my students do that on the first day and everybody's happy and they've they've had this huge victory of, of how to make an arch so that's awesome um, well i'm really glad that you told that story because that really leads nicely into my next question which is kind of trying to understand the idea of how did you go from taking masonry as a trade to taking it for you, you know, to an art form. And it sounds like you're, you know, you just explained that journey. So I imagine this arch for you must have really opened up the possibilities of what stone could be. That stone can be so much more than just a retaining wall or just a patio or just functional, but can really be, again, this this art form that lasts a lifetime. Absolutely. And, and that is what I began to see in uh, in my life 
in Vermont, there are lots of stonemasons. We are in a very stony country. Everybody can build a stone wall. Everybody's grandfather, I, I promise. Everybody's grandfather was a stonemason. <laughs> <laughs> we all know how to put uh, one stone on top of two. You can see the easy pattern of that if you're a pattern seer. Um, and it's, for me, in order to be able to make a living, in order to be able to satisfy my creative expression, which I realized about that time when I was 28 to about 32, that I was thinking that I was an individual. I wasn't somebody's daughter. I wasn't somebody's wife. I wasn't somebody's mother. I was me. And that this work was beautiful and it made me happy. And I found that I wanted to be happy and that creating more sculpture satisfied that, that it was something that I could do. It was for me. It was specific for me, whether or not I was being paid by another person. It was the thing that I did because I loved it. And that was a very important part of my journey. So in order to be able to create more art, I needed to have more clients and more clients meant maybe I was doing a patio and a stone wall, which began to be boring because they were just sort of the bread and butter parts of the job. Um, I began to try to weave in artwork and try to make it be more beautiful. And instead of rectilinear stuff, I found a rhythm within these soft curves. And I, I learned what Fibonacci was and what it meant. And I began to find the spiral of a pine cone and a conch shell had a resonance with me of what that the mathematic and the and the pattern of that and over the years just have developed a really refined um, ability to see what that is and how that sits in a piece of stone and how sets of stone together create this um, the, a, a vignette of color and shape and texture and um, the design and the feeling and the flavor of it feels quite natural. It feels like it might have occurred in, in the natural world without, um, without much manipulation from a person. Um, I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Um, it all stays in. I know it you, you took your cues from nature. It sounds like on those. Yeah. Well, I, and I wanted to say too, I, it's just, it's very interesting to hear you talk specifically about that process because Neil, I'm going to talk to you, talk for you for a minute. <laughs> then I'm sure you'll jump in. But it's something that Neil in particular is struggling with because our business is a design build model. So we do master planning for our clients and then we build the projects, our team, Neil, me, and we're out there building the projects. And Neil's mind never stops. He's probably mm -hmm. one of the most creative people that I've ever met. And I know it gets really frustrating for him because, you know, we feel like we're much more production orientated than I think we, we he have, wants we, to be. We have to be. Right, but right that's now. our livelihood, right. you know? Yeah. So it's, if you had your druthers, I mean, you would just be doing these creative things all the time, but that's not mm. quite reality. So, I mean, <laughs> how do you get to that <laughs> point where <laughs> it is reality and you can find the people who appreciate what you do so that you can kind of get out of that production mode? I'm sure it's, is, is it there for you at all at this point or is it really you're at a point where you're, people are finding you to do what you do best, which is create this artwork. Um, people do find me. I don't, 
I don't go seeking for things really. And sometimes people find me that I don't want to work for. <laughs> so um, I've, I've learned this really cool thing, which is no. <laughs> um, I, and I will say no to things even when I'm hungry. And I, I really have determined that, which is um, stupid. I just like straight up, no retirement plan, no, <laughs> no safety net, you know, no giant savings account. And, uh, those are dangerous things. And, but I would rather be hungry than work for somebody who would diminish me or my crew. I, I don't want to work for someone who is unthankful or who has values that are very, very different from mine. Um, I was offered a project, my first project ever as an individual on Martha's Vineyard. And um, it seemed like it was going to be a great project. It was camp on the land, build a beautiful sheep um, house for a, a client on his, um, which was um, an Onassis property. I know exactly where it was. I remember when the house was built. Um, and it was sort of like this call to come home and, um, I asked my friends from high school if they knew the individual and I was referenced to an article in the Gazette and I read the article and I was like, Oh, well, yeah, not working for that guy. And so um, there are opportunities to say no and to, uh, to choose other things that may be fulfilling. Um, I did a project for Coca-Cola company and I thought that was great. And, you know, who's to pick Coca-Cola? That's not a healthy product. You know, that's not a lifestyle that I, you know, embrace in particular. But um, Philip Morris asked me to be their spokesmodel and I said no. Wow. So, you know, there are some, that could have been, a, you know, a really big opportunity, but um, there were times, there were times to say yes and times to say no. And um, yeah, so we're I, trying, we're still trying to get the yes. We're trying to get the, <laughs> the yes project. Well, it's, it's, how do you do that, Mia? That's what I want to know. <laughs> for Neil, I'm asking well, for think, a friend. I'm for, just asking for, for a friend. For us, Thea, so we have, you know, we have trucks and machines and equipment sure. and labor because, yeah. you know, employees. It, and I, I do enjoy the design build. Isn't actually nothing I'd rather be doing except for beautiful sculptures. So it's, <laughs> so what I'll try to do, what we've tried to do is I'll do the, the side hustle, all the kids are using that term these days, mm -hmm. you know, the side hustle, I'll try to do the sculptural creative little components to things on the side. And that's just kind of a disaster because we work so much and we have two young kids. So it's, it is a struggle for me. It's, um, it's, I think it's probably tough. what you would deal with is similar to me is that as soon as I start the project that I was really amped to get going on, mm -hmm. As soon as I start, like the first day, the first stone, I am bored out of my mind. Okay. <laughs> you, you brought this up earlier, right? You, you had said that it resonated with me. You start thinking about the next project. So yeah. for me, is, are you like this where there's a problem, you design it, you figure it out, you put the steps in place to build it. As soon as I have that figured out and I'm going, Moving I literally on. do think <laughs> about the next thing. Yeah. Moving so, oh, I've had to... Um, well, I had to start doing yoga very seriously to like get my <laughs> mind at ease. Is, yep. there, is, there any, is there anything you do aside from work to, to, to ease your cranium? No. You just keep going. I just grind. Yep. Yeah. Yep. By the time that, you know, you just get into it and you go through it and you're tired at the end of the day. And by it, it, 
I would argue that it's not eight o'clock, but I've been told that I'm asleep at eight o'clock. Mm. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> no, I'm not sleeping. I'm not sleeping. <laughs> I, if I fall asleep between eight and eight thirty, I feel awesome the next day. So <laughs> I wish I could do it regularly. Oh, you too. Uh, yoga. There are though. a lot of things um, that I do that um, that would not work for you guys. Um, I have a crew of one, myself and my partner, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a house where I, um, rent, I have in the past rented rooms out and, um, I grow a lot of food. So I have a modest food budget. I own two very rusted vehicles, which I don't have debt on. Um, I, the, the roommates help pay the mortgage nice. and we, you know, we might have crackers and cheese for dinner because that's as much energy as we had to cook. So my lifestyle doesn't have a high overhead. And I have the luxury of, um, you know, traveling around the world and working in trade for food and lodging. So I might not take pay for an epic sculpture because Mm -hmm. I got to build the epic sculpture Mm -hmm. and be very satisfied. And I ate very well during that time. So the trade-off is the lifestyle. And I live in the moment. It's very, um, it's very present. It's very ephemeral, if you Mm -hmm. will. Um, and there, there aren't a lot of luxuries in it, although it's rich and deep and pure. Um, I don't have 10 people counting on me for, uh, well, if you count the kids, <laughs> might get to 10. Um, but I don't have employees that I have to consider their retirement plans. Right. And I don't have, um, uh, although I really want an excavator. Um, <laughs> oh, it's life-changing. It's life-changing. It <laughs> Well, um, I, keep, I keep my life extremely simple and um and i'm able to say no to you know the 14th patio this year because i just can't handle it and um i don't need to have that extra pain in the neck to to yeah. carry well that's um i think that's gonna that's really refreshing for our audience to hear because you know some people are coming into the business they're wondering where they're going to go and it's refreshing to hear from you that there are things you can do on your own if you adjust your lifestyle, which in a lot of ways is very anti-American, right? With everything we're always bombarded with, but you can do these things and be happy. And um, you never know (laughs) with the economy too. (laughs) I would argue happier. Happier, Um, yeah. My my happiness is not based on my stuff. Um, It's it's actually based on how dirty are my nails. Hmm. Because if, if I'm really dirty and my skin is cracked, it means I've been going hard. And yeah. I built a big thing and it's just epic. I, you know, glam nails, um, glittery fingernails, uh, lots of makeup. These are things that just make me giggle. Yeah. Because that, <laughs> that, I saw, yes. um, you you that, guys are very like, similar too. <laughs> I love There's it. some fingernails where people can't like touch things anymore. Can you imagine? And they're like bright blue. That would just, I would be scared all the time. Ah, you know, what's that thing on my hand? And I don't know how you do stuff if you have that. And I'm just so practical. Everything is just so just refined down to do we need it or, you know, is it just going to be a burden? Well, I remember, it's funny you say that. I remember, I think it was our second year or maybe our third year in business. 
and we had gotten a pretty large project. We were building this outdoor kitchen. There was a pool involved, some nice plantings. And I remember the wife was kind of more of the breadwinner in the family. And mm. we were at our car. I was showing her some samples of something. And I looked at her hands, and she just had these beautifully manicured mm. nails. And the right, it felt like the right thing to say, oh, wow, your nails look lovely. And she was, you know, very proud. She's like, yes, this is my summer look. And I couldn't resist. <laughs> I just threw out my hands, <laughs> which, you know, my, my nails are a mess. I have dirt under my fingernails all the time. And I was like, well, these are my summer nails. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is, we 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 got that job because Kevin, the That's husband, right. he said later that he hired us because he looked at everyone's hands that came to the property to you know present themselves, and my hands are always cut and open mm -hmm. and just filthy, and you know you get like that. Well, you don't have fingerprints anymore, mm -hmm. see. Yeah, <laughs> but I get those dirt lines in my palms and everything, you know. Sure. And uh, that's he, he swears that's why he hired us because that proved that we actually did the work. Yeah. So Funny. it I, can pay I off. A, I went to a project interview and the client thinks that they're interviewing me, which I think is sweet. Oh yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, Little do they know. <laughs> um, and you know, like I said before, I'm very tall. Um, so I went up and first of all, the gentleman opened the door and he said, Oh, I expected you to be bigger. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> love you already. Um, and he he basically didn't believe that um you know he's like so who do you who you hire like, <laughs> i love that you, question uh -huh. yes who's yeah. your crew like who, who are the guys um he didn't believe it was me he didn't believe that that i was capable that you know that this could happen that this little body can do this stuff and yes i have help but it's not you know i don't hire 10 people to do the thing and i yeah. stand there directing yeah uh, he said, show me your hands. Like that was going to be like the, the proof on his side. And I showed him my hands and he's like, oh. Oh, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so yeah. did you end up working for him? No, I don't work for people that I know. Okay. <laughs> Those first you impressions. You open the door are... and you're looking up and you're like, Oh, Those I first like impressions are killers. Right. It's funny <laughs> you talk about like size and stature though, because I'm I'm a very thin guy. I'm not big uh -huh. at all, and I get that a lot where people wonder how it is I do what I do, and I'm like it's just basic physics to me. Like um, some of the bigger guys, the muscular guys, the yeah. tall guys, they just they go in, they see a big stone, they immediately their ego says I got to pick this up. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. they hurt themselves. Yeah. Where I'm limited, and I know I am. I've gotten a little better about that as I got older, but I'm like, how can I move this logically? <laughs> right, right, right. But how can I lose? How can I move this logically and protect myself? So it's yeah. it's almost an advantage. It is, I think, to be smaller. Yeah, because you have to be more. Well, I think creative. you work smarter. I think you work more creatively, and I think that that will it's more sustainable and it creates an endurance and a long term vision. Um, I've learned because I don't have that massive upper body strength or the height. I'll build like a stone ramp up to wherever mm -hmm. and I'll roll a, a stone up and then put it on to where it's got to go if I can't just lift it up or um, yeah I mean there's all sorts of clever workarounds for for people of all sizes and um, it also will keep you working longer you don't you, you don't injure your back because you're not an idiot mm -hmm. um, <laughs> when you're working smarter you you work more conservatively and you can work longer in your life you also tend to be happier because you're not injured yeah and um, you're not you know, Masons have a bad reputation for being heavy drinkers. And if you're not drinking off your pain and your horrible clients, 
then uh, you have this opportunity to be just pretty buoyant. And for me, that's my secret is to just stay in the happy place. Yeah. Don't work unhappy. Don't do it the hard way. Um, you can build big sculptures and you can do it smart and make it beautiful. Thea, how are you doing for time? Do you have time for a couple more questions? Sure, I do. Are you sure? Are you, are you, I can feel your like anxiety. Like, I gotta get up. I gotta get up. It's Sunday. It's my day. Um, so from a lot of the things that we've read about you, you seem to collaborate a lot. And then you talk about working with your partner, Michael, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is just interesting to me because again, kind of in watching Neil with some of his more personal work, it seems like a very solitary art form in a way and um talk about the collaboration because again that it's like there's a certain amount of letting go you have to do Mm. and i I have to think that has to be hard but maybe it's not it's not um i um as i said before i don't see it as a as a point of ego um for me in every piece of work there are three uh there are three things that are collaborating to make that happen always um, there's me and what I want to bring to it. And the, this is my big dog. Um, <laughs> hey, there's me and what I want to bring to the sculpture. There is the homeowner and their budget restrictions, which delineate the size and shape of the sculpture. And then there's the landscape itself, which creates some rules about what it can hold and what, what can happen there. So the collaboration is this magical thing that happens between the amount and shape and size and quality of the material itself, the size of the thing that I can bring and how much budget we can work within to make that happen. And often enough, if there is, um, you, you begin a project, you have a specific thing in mind and then you hit a piece of ledge um, right. or you hit a spring or you know, there's any number of unexpected things. And I find that in that, when that happens, that's where the magic is. Oh, nice. And those unexpected, unaccounted for, unplanned moments require an organic adaptation. That, well, that's kind of interesting what you were talking about in terms of the collaboration, because I was talking more with people, but you brought you brought a whole world that I never thought about. You are collaborating with the stone that you use. You yes. are collaborating with the landscape. The clients I get, but those two elements... I never really thought about, and you're right. You do have to let go mm. of your expectations when you're working with the stone and the land itself, because yeah. you don't know what's going to get thrown at you. Yeah, but that's neat. I just, you know, I, I just assumed automatically collaboration with humans, <laughs> but there's it's so much bigger than that. It really it is. is. Um, and so when you when you have that bigger aspect in mind, the humans, it, it's just another thing. It it's doesn't it's not a big deal anymore. You've already collaborated, just let it go another notch. So I have the opportunity to not be, um, you know, I'm not doing the landscape planning. I'm not um, designing for some Latin names that I can't pronounce. I I don't have a specific um, scheme in mind for, um, most of the work that I do is organic. It's mostly sculptural. It's mostly supporting um, a hardscape that is installed by somebody else. Mm. So I have the, I have a beautiful dance that I can do to make something incredible. I'm creating and installing the design. And I, I don't have, um, most of what I do doesn't need uh, a permit or a blueprint. Mm-hmm. And so I have this loose 
philosophy, which is really lovely, which suits my personality. And when I need to work with an architect who has a degree, who has um, a list of plants that need to get installed, and they need to be so many feet wide of planting bed around so, so much planting material surrounded by edging of such and such type, that's, that's my moment to walk away and to, I'll do the hardscape installation and allow all those other plantings to happen. And the most fun we can have and the best job that I can do will be when I'm not micromanaged. I've very clearly told my clients that if they wanna micromanage me, they can, because I'm really good at it, but it'll cost <laughs> twice as much. <laughs> if, like if they wanna do that, if they wanna stand out there with me, we can do that. I'll, I'll, I'll go there for them and I can do, I'll just be the body and the tool and I'll lay the stone exactly as they see. And then they are the Mason and I'm just the machine. They often understand that I am the Mason and that I am the machine and that I am the artist. And that if they let me do my thing and they feed me snacks, uh, <laughs> very important. All comes down to snacks. <laughs> Two thirty coffee break. Um, <laughs> We have a, the sculpture, the installation will be married to their land and to them in a way that they can't micromanage. It'll be the most beautiful, most pure, um, heartbreaking, lovely thing that they'll have ever had. Um, whereas if they try to manipulate it, you're working against all of that natural thing that's happening, all that organic flow mm. and um, the ability of the creator to create doesn't want to be really harnessed too hard because you get a manufactured thing and some other mason can do that that's not my that's not really my gig so i have to ask you what astrological sign are you i am coming into my power band here <laughs> coming up on taurus all right all right i just had to know <laughs> does it make sense to you now it Taurus. does the drive right that Taurus drive and Taurus rising and Taurus setting and Taurus in between and a little bit of stubborn and something. yes yes that, <laughs> it, it does it does make sense <laughs> um, <laughs> that's awesome. so I, I did want to ask too how did you come to start doing workshops because because that seems like oh. a big part of what you do in your life how did it that is. idea evolve and, and start well um masonry could be considered a, a dying trade. Mm. Um, it's an art. It's a trade. Um, it's really good for people who need an outlet. It's a creative physical outlet. It's also a place where people um, with uh, less education tend to come to. And it's a place that can elevate an entire group of people to go from being a tradesperson to being an artist. Nice. You can change your stars you can change your trajectory. And so I feel it's an opportunity for me to gift my depth of knowledge forward so that somebody else can take what I do and my philosophy in one bundle and then grow it into a new thing, into the next thing and into this magical other place so that I don't have to force or restrict or constrict a person's um, skills. I can just unload everything that I know and let them take that and go forward. So my my knowledge base, you said, what do you not do? Um, <laughs> my knowledge base is very, very broad. And that's because I'm very curious. I wanted a pizza oven. I figured out how to build them. Um, I wanted to, so I built pizza ovens in Italy. That's ridiculous. Um, yeah. 
That's the uh, place to build them. My God. Well, yeah, but you would think that Italians know how to build a pizza oven. <laughs> I guess you yeah. It's an interesting way to look at it. <laughs> Making some assumptions there. So I teach Italians Italian. in yeah, Italy Italian. how to be Masons. And I just think that that's ridiculous and so perfect. Um, I teach people from all over the world how to do this trade and how to see the humanity in every rock and how to see the beauty and imperfection and how to refine um, doing hard work with joy and how to um, how to not dance very well at all at the end of the day. <laughs> well, you brought up Italy and I definitely want you to talk about the Trullo restoration workshops that you do in yeah. Puglia. Am I saying it right? Puglia. Puglia. The G is silent. Yeah. In Puglia, Italy. Um, be- they look amazing. And so can you just tell the listeners a little bit about what these structures are, what you know of the history of them? Sure. Um, and you can read a little bit about my contrary stance about what a true low is and why it exists on my website and a little bit of history about the truly. Um, truly is more than one, true low is one. So it's the difference between the O and the I that makes the word plural. Um, truly, as small things, are houses in Southern Italy. And they are, um, if you think of an ice cream cone, just imagine the cone part in your head and take that cone and flip it upside down so that the wider part is at the bottom and the pointy part is at the top. That's the roof system for these little teeny houses. And to make a bigger house, you just glom a whole bunch of them together and you have all of these little pointy cones all over the place with these funny little kubli box stone houses with arch doors and little teeny um, entryways. It's like hobbits, um, but Italian people huh. and with probably hairy feet. So. <laughs> <laughs> but so um, people do lit. So these, these people live in them. They are, okay. they are beautiful, real, authentic houses. Um, and they, they are a very old fashioned, sweet type of house in, in Puglia, which is the Southern part of Italy. It's the heel of the boot. My family is from the toe of the boot. I wanted to travel to my homeland. And so I went to, um, to see these sweet little houses. And one of the architects that I had the privilege of teaching how to be a Mason, um, she moved to Italy, moved to Puglia, invited us to come over and to work with a Mason that she knew and to restore the roof of a Trullo um, at her property. Nice. So we did that and it was amazing. And the Italian Mason was my age. His name is Mario. He was trained by his father. Um, who was trained by his father, very similar lineage. Um, and he wouldn't have a thing to do with me. (laughs) He wouldn't speak to me. He wouldn't understand that I wasn't trying to take his job. He didn't want women on the roof. He wouldn't work if it was windy. He had all of this different philosophy about life. And it was just a very, very acrimonious first couple of days of, of being there on the project. Mm. And, um, he, First of all, out of a sense of chivalry only, this uh, benevolent patriarchy, he didn't want me to hurt myself. So he would pick up a stone or not let me pick up a stone because he was afraid I would be injured. So after strutting around with rocks and holding them while in conversation with him, trying to um, have a conversation because he only spoke uh, dialect, not even Italian, uh, it was a very rough time period because most of my students at that workshop were women and um, it was tough for him to understand why would people 
want to participate in doing this thing. This is mm. antique. It's old fashioned. It's funny. People don't even like me. Why would you want to do what I'm doing? And it just didn't, it just didn't make sense. It didn't register for him that anybody would want to learn how to do this work. He had never taught anybody how to do it. He didn't work with anybody. No one was interested in this really old fashioned thing that he was doing. And we were enthralled. Yeah. All of us were really excited about this. So the first part of the project was to examine the roof and then take off all of the stone on the roof and then remake material and then put them all back on the roof. So a trullo just structurally is a small house that has no wood. There are no rafters. There is no wood in the system at all that makes it hold together. There's an inside um, cone that creates a pointy interior dome and the outside skin, which sheds water off of it. Mm. So we were going to reskin the outside of this trullo. So we took down all the material and we shaped new material. And then he put up a stick at the peak of the roof and it had a string on it. And we used that string to create a guideline of the angle of the finished roof. So we, that, and it's, it's a very rough string tied, like it's somebody's twine collection. Uh, uh. And it's, it's tied to a stick at the other end and knotted so that you have like a, it won't just wheel away in the wind. Okay. And we use that, we use that string and that stick as the guiding diameter um, controller for the whole roof. And by the end of 15 days, we had restored the roof of that little trullo and put the top um, pinacoli on top of it, which is this little ball thing on a cup. It's a very beautiful limed in little topper. Nice. So I recommend looking up, look up truly in, um, in any kind of device, if it's a book. Yep. Or <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely, I'll, um, we'll take a lot of the information from this um, recording with you and we'll, we'll blast all the stuff out. I've looked at okay. the images and um, A, it just looks like an amazing place. The structures are magical. They are. And they uh, are magical. Now and we get to explore them inside and outside because yeah. um, a lot of them are abandoned and the law is that if it's not locked, you can go in it. So, oh, no kidding. Yeah. Which no is kidding. tricky if it's your house. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had said, I think I had read, on your website that a lot of the, the roofs had caved in. So the, the, the actual structure itself was full of what was the roof stone. Yes. Yep. Yes. And also um, a lot of that has been stolen. So people will uh, repair their roof with a stolen roof of somebody else's roof. Mm -hmm. So um, it's tricky to find if you want to build a new roof on an old house and you want it to look old, um, you know, that yeah. it's, that's hard because the, the stone you buy is bright white. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the old stone is a nice soft gray. So okay. you might want to have repurposed stone. And when you buy it from a quarry, you don't really know where they're getting it from. Interesting. So if it's to, going to weather or sustain as long as the original stone, I would imagine that'd be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. But stone rots, you know, a lot of people don't, don't realize that stone rots. Mm -hmm. It does decay and it oxidizes and it turns color and it grows moss. And on the North side, it might be, you know, really gross and, and broken. And mm. that might be where the roof leaks. And if you need uh, to repair your roof, you need whole stone, not rotten stone. So it's, it's important to have good whole stone. 
Yeah, certainly. What was what was your relationship like with Mario at the end, at the end of 15 days? Um, at the end of the 15 days, he uh, served us drinks in his incredibly beautiful home uh-huh. and was sobbing like a child. Real? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He, he totally, he, he was just heartbroken that we would leave. Oh, that is amazing. Loved each one of us. And he, they produced this incredibly beautiful meal for us. And um, he, you know, he was just like <laughs> wiping the tears away. It was so it was such a transformation. And then the next year when I went back, it was open arms and oh. hugs. And um, he would call me first. And we um, we got to the end of the, we were like three days before the end of the project. And I had been working very hard to engage all of the students in it. Um, some, some of the students were architects and they didn't want to do and weren't capable of and were tired of doing the actual physical work. And it appeared to both Mario and I and Mike that we weren't gonna accomplish the, the pinnacle. Mario called it, he said, you and me will work together. Mike will bring a stone and we will finish this roof. So okay. it was just Mario and me just laying stone together. Kind of, you know, it was kind of, it began to be a little bit of a race because uh-huh. he trusted me and he knew and he would look at me and I would look at him and then we just go. And it became people having fun. Yeah. It was people having fun. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't this Italian guy and this American woman. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. And then always Mike and I have a running joke because the Italian way to say Michael is such a beautiful, you know, it's, it's not how I say Michael. Um, it's sort of like this different lilt. And so we tease each other about if Mario is calling us and he would say, Michael, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you'd hear this Michael call. And there was a rock that I could have easily lifted, but he would call Michael to, to lift the stone and, and give it to him up on the roof. So I would have to call out, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) So we were noticing on your website, too, how you are bringing interns on now. Yeah. And I have to say, so I love the description because you, you know, you basically talk about kind of what you're looking for in an intern. And then you note that if you're someone who likes to be tardy, um, (laughs) you know, tires easily, eats junk food, that you still can apply but know that your ways are going to have to change. And then right below that, you have kind of what I call your tagline that I've seen on your emails and everything. So right below that, it says, opportunity exists around us and capacity exists within. And those two sentences together are so amazingly profound and beautiful because it doesn't matter. You're willing to look at someone and say, well, it doesn't matter where you're starting from, but this is where you can go. And I think that's completely your story and it's just beautiful and inspiring. Um, And I'm just so thrilled that you came on with us to share this with us and with everyone who's listening. And I'm just glad you're out there. (laughs) Glad you're in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out here and, and, and I'm glad you're out here too. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Neil, do you have any other questions? I I could do this for like another two hours. I know, I know. I have other questions and I'm like, no, just let her go. Let her go. We may may have part two down the road. Okay. If that'll work out. And Um, we may show up to one of your workshops. Yeah. One question though. (laughs) Are you doing one of those workshops or those structures? Did you read that, Samantha, this summer in Vermont? So, yes. 
But I guess everything's <laughs> up in the air now. Yeah. But let's yeah. say in an ideal world, you would have in had... an ideal world. Okay. The pizza oven, which is directly out this oh window. Oh my gosh, the turtle pizza oven, people. Mind oh, you. Oh, this isn't the turtle. This isn't oh, the turtle. The okay. turtle is that the turtle doesn't need a different roof. The turtle's roof is beautiful. Oh my gosh. Um, this is that just a regular awesome. everyday pizza oven. Okay. Um, that needs a true low roof. So oh. I, I am gonna teach a workshop because I need help. Okay. And um, I'm going to teach people how to do it and um, use my property as the guinea pig. So um, in the ideal world, that will have a, a true low roof on it. Um, mm -hmm. My classes that were scheduled for May have been um, temporarily and hopefully positioned into July mm -hmm. so that those okay. will happen. The um, Italy and Austria workshops were canceled. And I hope that um, we'll be able to do those next summer. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Yep. Well, and, that will give um, Neil time to plan. <laughs> I, know, I might, I might, I might want to. If I can make this, if it happens, I might want to come up for the pizza oven. But we'll, we'll. So, where can people find all this information right. for all these amazing workshops? Well, in theory, it exists on my website, which is okay. myearthwork.com. Mm -hmm. um, and in um, the workshops, there is information there. Okay. And I say in theory because I am a working stonemason and doing a million things, as I told you guys yes. already. So I'm also the website curator, and I haven't kept it up to date. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> we can relate. Yeah, my goodness. Plus, you're, re you're, you're building a home. I'm you're building like, a home. Are you done uh, siding it? Is it done? So it's almost done. Uh, and uh, I'm building a pond. I have uh, seven Angora goats, three of whom need to be shorn still. Um, that's a priority for today, probably. Um, and I have... Uh, a stained glass greenhouse that I'm building at the moment. Wow. I'm taking care of my mom who has some dementia. So that's a full-time project. And both of my daughters are getting married this summer. Oh, wow. so. they couldn't <laughs> split it up. Could they, they couldn't give you a break. <laughs> no breaks. No. Well, they're, they're Thea's kids. What do you, what do you, what do you think? She set the tone. Extremely competitive. <laughs> me first. No, me first. Uh. Oh yeah. my goodness. Well, well there's, with, a few, there's a few irons in the fire. <laughs> well, with all that going on again, we are so grateful for you to take the time to talk with us today. Thank you. So thank yeah, you this was so awesome. much. Thank Thanks. you for everything. Absolutely. Thank you everyone for listening. Please be sure to follow us at landscapes and pancakes underscore podcast on Instagram. Be sure to subscribe, rate and comment where you listen to this podcast and as always, check out our work and progress on magmadesigngroup.com and magmadesigngroup on Instagram.